Hello and thanks for joining us once again for another episode of the Playsheet Podcast. I am once again joined by my good friend Joe. It's great to be back, Charles. Uh, but I just want to say thank you to James last week for stepping in. He did a great job and it's great to know there's a backup Horton in case anything should ever happen to you, mate. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to have to start watching my back now, am I? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Joe, you've had a couple of weeks off. I hope you are very rested because... Boy, has there been enough for you to catch up on on your return back to the UK. Yeah, certainly a lot of news this week. The story which is dominating, though, looming over everything, is a story of John Gruden, who has resigned from the Las Vegas Raiders, ultimately before he was pushed, with regards to emails which he has sent over the last 10 years, which ranged from racist to homophobic to just damn offensive. Huge news story, and I think that the implications of this may well trot on for a while yet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this uh, stemmed from news that broke uh, last year with the Washington football team. There was a lot of news surrounding both Gruden and Snyder. The NFL, they've done a little bit more digging into this. They've searched through 650,000 emails and uh, John Gruden and Alan's name have come up time and time again. Yeah, now, so there's 650,000 emails, like you say. That's a huge number of emails. To start with, are we to believe that it's only John Gruden who said bad things in 650,000 emails? Are we to believe that John Gruden is the only racist or homophobe in the National Football League who's been sending emails with Washington football team? I just don't think he is. And Roger Goodall, whether he intended to or not, has backed himself into a massive corner right now because the NFL has come out and said in those 650,000 emails which they're refusing to release right now, there's nothing else at the same level as, as what John Gruden has said. Now, you mentioned earlier, Chaz, uh, when we were speaking, that the National Football League's Players Association is mounting a legal challenge now to try to get those emails released. If those emails are released and it's a Pandora's trove of just bad stuff, which in all likelihood, it may well be, this could mark the end of Roger Goodell. I think absolutely. And I think there's a, a feeling amongst some fans and some players that Gruden verbally had a go at Goodall and this feels almost like his his revenge. Now, that is not to take away from the awful things that Gruden has been accused of and found guilty of, of saying and sharing and, and so on. But this very much did feel just because it was only Gruden and Allen that have been caught up in this, like it, it was very much targeted back at Gruden for calling out Goodall. And if he's hiding other stuff to protect his friends or to protect other owners and this comes out, he will have to step away from that role as commissioner. These emails have been leaked and emails get leaked for a reason. They don't just accidentally get leaked. They don't just randomly get leaked. It's a targeted reason that they've wanted to hurt Gruden. Now, don't get me wrong, he deserves to go. As a leader of an organisation, you cannot say stuff like that. And really, you thought crime's not a crime, but you shouldn't be thinking like uh, stuff like that in this day and age. There's no saving graces to anything that Gruden did. But ultimately, there was a reason that someone wanted him gone, and there was just a very easy way to do that with the emails that they had. As I mentioned, though, there's probably more, and you're playing a very, very dangerous game when you start to go down this road of releasing emails and keeping some and not sending out the others. Because ultimately, if I was a player, regardless of being black, regardless of being gay or whatever a player may be, 
if I was just myself, uh, just a white guy, I think that I'd want to know what's in the rest of those uh, emails to know which leaders are guys really who have an unsavory flavor about them. There will be challenges. And if those emails come out and there's, you know, the slightest hint of similar stuff to other leaders, other execs, other coaches, which Chaz, there just will be, Roger Goodall will have to resign. It's just as simple as that because it, it, he's he's actively then covered it up. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I, I think it's going to be a very interesting few months now watching or, you know, maybe more than that, seeing how this unfolds and, and seeing whether the NFL lawyers can fight that and keep things locked up. Because I think to your point, if those emails come out, we're going to see a very uh, very explosive outcome, I'd imagine. This story still has legs and this is going to go on for weeks and months. But then I suppose following that, Tampa Bay have made the decision that they're going to be removing Gruden from the Ring of Honor. Yeah, and to be honest, I think Tampa Bay are the only organization here that's acted with any speed to do the right thing. Ultimately, the NFL has had all these emails for a while. They've leaked them at their own pace and they've leaked them in a way that has forced Gruden to resign. And they would have kept on leaking emails until he did. Tampa Bay, basically, as soon as the emails came out, which were damning where he had to go, that's it. They've basically scrubbed him. And to be honest, there's no mitigating circumstances here. You know, sometimes people make mistakes and you kind of feel sorry for them. But these aren't historic things where people used to say stuff different back in the day. The latest one of his emails was 2011, when the current president was the vice president. I mean, you know, stuff hasn't really changed much since then. He was sending homophobic uh, emails three, four years ago. The volume, the frequency, there's no saving graces. He was sending these emails 10 years ago. It was 20 years ago that he won the Super Bowl that he's still basically dining off. The Super Bowl that he won with a number of black players. John Gruden will ultimately get scrubbed from the history books of the National Football League here. And you shouldn't feel sympathy for him. It's actually a little bit disturbing how many people have tried to come to his support and have tried to make excuses because ultimately there's no excuses. And John Gruden, for what he has achieved and from one time that he may have been a good coach, he's going to be assigned to a footnote from what he's become since then. Yeah, and I think it's a really positive move from Tampa Bay, both in terms of attracting talent to their club. You know, you're going to want to go and play for a team that stands up for decent values and does the right thing. But also on top of that, I think almost like a zero tolerance towards this kind of behavior and saying, hey, do you know what? Not even your legacy is protected when you do things like that. I think it sends a bit of a shockwave through the league and hopefully it makes, you know, one or two players who also are kind of struggling with their behavior off the pitch have a second think and, and go, actually, you know, if I if I want to be remembered, if I want to go down as one of the greats, it's not just enough to be excellent at football. Unfortunately, I think that some of the things that players get away with, they'll still continue to get away with. I, I'm, I'm not going to rank crimes in kind of order of severity and if one thing's worse than the others because people are human, people make mistakes, people do bad things. But in terms of, you know, what Gruden has done, there's nothing to mitigate it and the right action has been taken by Tampa Bay in this instance. Well... Let's move on to some of the games from last week then, shall we, Joe? And probably what better place to start than the London game itself? Yep, so you were there with James, weren't you, Charles? 
Yeah, absolutely. We took a trip up to Tottenham Stadium, a long trip, I might add. Uh, It takes (laughs) quite a while to get there, unless you presumably live in Tottenham, because the transport links are not ideal. But the stadium itself is absolutely amazing. I do have to say, you know, hats off to Tottenham for, for what they've created there. It's incredibly modern. The atmosphere is fantastic. And the NFL put on a real show there for the first game in the Tottenham Stadium. How did the atmosphere stack up compared to other UK games you've been to? Now, me and you have both been to Twickenham games. We've been to Wembley games. Now, I've never been to Spurs Stadium. I've just avoided it. I've never really fancied the commute back on a Sunday, coming back from that black hole of London. But how does the atmosphere at White Hart Lane compare to those other grounds where we've seen National Football League games in the UK? Yeah, I think, do you know what? The NFL did a good job of building up the hype. I mean, before the game even started, you had the national anthem was sung from the roof of the stadium. Yeah, I saw that. There was a flyover with fireworks. So, you know, before the game had even kicked off, people really felt the kind of pageantry of of true NFL and, and were getting into that spirit. So... It was very loud from the offset. I think the way the stadium's been designed, it's quite flat at the bottom, but then it gets very, very steep very quickly, almost a bit like New Camp. And I think they've kind of replicated that design in order to keep that sound and that noise in. Obviously, the thing with NFL is not everybody is a fan of the two teams playing. Yeah, yeah. We had the Falcons, we had the Jets. It was not particularly close. The Jets started getting into it towards the end of the game and made it a competition and then it got a little bit noisier. But there were definite drop-offs within the game as fans of neither of the teams started to lose a little bit of interest. Which team were the home team, by the way? So it was the Falcons for this game, although I would would probably argue I probably saw more Jets fans in the stadium than I did Falcons fans. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, it was a good game. Look... Patterson went off again, as we've seen him do time and time again this season. And I think a real kind of shining moment for the Falcons was Pitts. He sort of had the breakout game that people were expecting that he might have this game with Calvin Ridley out. I I suppose the thing that surprised me was Calvin Ridley hasn't been a high usage player, even while he's been fit for the Falcons this season. So why... Is it only now that Pitts is kind of seeing the targets that he saw? Because he certainly showed his ability and his athleticism in this game. I'm really surprised that the Falcons haven't turned to him more often because it's not like they're actually, you know, airing it out to Ridley all the time when he's about. So I'm just wondering why those targets aren't going his way. And maybe that's something to watch out for. Is this the start of Matt Ryan trusting Pitts? I guess there's a number of factors to think about here. One of them, like you mentioned, is building that trust, building that bond with your receiver to trust them to throw the ball to them. Also, tight ends. Tight ends take a while to develop. The historic thing was that once you draft a tight end, you've always got to be thinking two to three years down the line. And even with an alleged generational player like Carl Pitts, as he was hyped up to be, I think that quite a few people didn't have immediate expectations for him. You're right, Calvin Ridley was used perhaps sparingly. Some of that was game script with what we've seen so far. So it'll be interesting to see how things go on. 
I am still kind of intrigued by the physique that Carl Pitts has. When you look at him, he does still look more like a split end, a flanker, more than he does a tight end. And whether he will continue to line up in the offensive line or whether he'll you know, be moved more to the boundary in future, might see him go into the slot slightly more. Be interesting to see how they line him up. But it was a breakout game for him and uh, let's see if he can keep it going. Talking about the London game, Joe, obviously there's been a commitment from the NFL that there are going to be three London games going forward. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's great news. I guess we're greedy here. There were times, you know, what, three, four years ago when I was going to four London games every season and you'd have basically a month or two where it'd be almost every weekend you'd be at a game. So I'd love it to go back to those levels where we basically had half a home season when the league season was 16 games, home season was eight games, and we were getting four. It'd be great to go back to at least those levels. Three London games, I think that potentially, potentially means we might get a Wembley game back. Maybe two at Spurs, one at Wembley, but we'll see how things go there. What's perhaps more interesting, if we could even go there, is the narrowing down now to three cities in Germany where they're likely to expand the game to. It's going to be Frankfurt, Munich, or Düsseldorf. Do you know much about those cities, Chaz? Do you have a preference for where you'd like to see a game played? I mean, I've been to Munich and I've seen the stadium there and I've seen crowds on a game day, not an NFL game day. I think there's a real buzz around the city in Munich when they're playing football, certainly. Uh, I think it would be incredibly exciting. To be honest, I'd be happy with any of those three cities because I just think the German fans, there's a kind of real zest for NFL there in the same way that there is over in the UK. You know, they don't get to experience it as often as the American fans do. And so when it does come to town, they go all out. I would love to go to Germany and see a game over there. I think it would be fantastic. I would 100% love to go there. I think that the German fan base is a very smart fan base. They're a very mature fan base there. They know the game well. They deserve a game. As you've probably seen from the games that we've been to in London, you often get a lot of German fans in the stadium. So I'm really happy for the fans out there and I hope they get some great games. For me personally, I think I also agree with you. I think Munich would be a great place. The only issue with Munich, which could be a problem, is the timing. You probably want the game to happen back end of September at the latest, really, because then you're going into Oktoberfest and you're not going to get hotels or any of that kind of thing. Running Oktoberfest and an NFL game in Munich might be a little bit too much. But, you know, Düsseldorf, I think, would be great as well. Either one of them. But looking forward to going out to Germany for a game in the coming seasons. And I suppose another topic that's emerged from the games that have just taken place as well is quarterback injuries. So we saw Russ go down with a finger dislocation, and then Burrow has been taken to hospital with a neck contusion. So with Russ, it's just one of those free accidents, really. I think it was Aaron Donald who got through, put his hand up as Russ was throwing, and his, and his hand's gone into it, he's popped out his finger. I mean, these things can happen. What it means, though, I believe the Seahawks are out of it now. Russ Wilson has basically carried that team for much of the last two seasons. There's been the odd game where he's had a real downer and the team's had some bad results coming off that. When Russ plays well, he gives the Seahawks a chance. When he's not playing 100%, the Seahawks look like an average team at best, but most of the time a bad team. I can't see how they're going to win half of the games that they've got coming up in the next six to eight game stretch that he's going to be out. I could see them losing far less than half games. I think this marks the end, basically, of the Seahawks 2021 campaign. And that's no disrespect to uh, Geno Smith, but 
he's not Russ Wilson and this team just relies on Russ Wilson so much. And we've already spoken about this division and how competitive it is. Absolutely. You've got the Rams, you've got the Cardinals who are flying high, and then you've got the 49ers who are still battling hard. So it's so unfortunate for a team in a division like that to lose somebody as the magnitude of importance that, that Russ is to that team. You're absolutely right. You know, they've relied on him to dig them out of holes time and time again. Do you think this spells any danger for Pete Carroll and his tenancy at the team? No, I don't. I think that Pete Carroll is relatively safe with everything that he's done and the reputation that he holds. I don't see this as being a threat to Carroll. I think everyone can see it for what it is. Yes, the team does need to almost rebuild in quite a few areas. We spoke about how bad the secondary was last year. We spoke about how bad the O-line was. Yes, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But in a way, in a way, this could almost be a bit of a blessing in disguise. They're still going to try to win, but they're just not going to win as much as if Russ was there. They'll get a better draft pick and they're going to need that to rebuild going into next season. And then, of course, last time round, Burrow missed a big chunk of the season with a leg injury towards the back end of last year. He's come back in. He looks great. He's hooking up really well with Jamar Chase. And then there's this scare, which has sent him to hospital because really he didn't get down quickly enough. That's exactly it. Now, we criticised the O-line of the Bengals quite a bit last season. They're still not quite there yet. There's still a bit of work to do, but you can't put this one on the O-line at all. Joe Burrow... Ultimately, he was reckless. Now, if you look at how he behaved in this game against how Justin Herbert was behaving in his game, Justin Herbert slides. When Justin Herbert is coming up to a defender, he slides. The slide is one of the huge advantages a quarterback has over the defense. As soon as you start going down, as soon as you put that leg out to start sliding, you're untouchable. You're literally untouchable. And if you're touched, it's a penalty. It's 15 yards. Burrow should have just slid. There wasn't a need at that stage in the game to put his body on the line the way he did. I think there's a mythology in certain games where quarterbacks have done reckless things. I'm thinking the helicopter with John Elway that have gained that legendary status. It doesn't make sense in the modern game for quarterbacks to be doing that unless it's almost exceptional, exceptional circumstances. A championship game, a Super Bowl, in a week five game against the Packers, yes, it's important. But at that stage, I think it was third quarter, there was no need to do what he did. He should have slid. He needs to work out how to slide. I think Aaron Rodgers said it a couple of days later and he was spot on. It's probably one of the most sensible things he said all year. Slide. <laughs> yeah, he, he said it to him after the game, actually. He said, slide, you're too damn talented. And, uh, uh, you know, to your point, Joe, in the modern era, if you've got somebody like Aaron Rodgers telling you that, you know, just get down. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Like, who knows? Even if you're a yard or two short, you might get tapped by the safety or the linebacker, whoever's there, as you're going down, you might get that penalty yardage. Sliding is such a weapon that quarterbacks have. It's such an advantage over the defense. It's your protection. You should use it as much as you can. And Herbert, who is adapted to the National Football League more than any quarterback over the last two seasons, Herbert slides well. Watch what Herbert does. There's so many games that we can talk about, Joe. Uh, obviously, the Browns and the Chargers game was absolutely immense. You briefly chatted about Herbert there, but I think probably to focus on before we take a look towards next week, what's happening with Denver and Carolina and their regression almost? Because they started off the season really, really well, probably stronger than a lot of fans or pundits maybe thought they would start. And it feels like they're just starting to slide a little bit. If we look at the first few games that the Panthers had, the Jets, 
so you know it doesn't really mean much they had the saints who have been all over the place in terms of sometimes putting out a performance and sometimes not against the panthers they didn't and they had the texans who a lot of people had as a 0 and 17 team this year so they had three easy games to start and their defense played very well in those games they then had a game against the Cowboys that they were never really in. They lost 36-28 technically by score, but the Cowboys the Cowboys had a beating of them all the way through the game. And then the game against the Eagles this week was, I'd say, which is disappointing extremely from an offensive point of view. I mean, Sam Darnold had one touchdown, three interceptions. The team only mustered up 18 points, and one of them was, I think it was a pick six or a fumble return, something like that. It was a defensive touchdown. They could hardly get going against this Eagles team who really are nothing special whatsoever and ultimately lost a game that at one point they were leading by a fair amount. It was a disappointing performance from the Panthers and like the Broncos, I think they're at a slight kind of crossroads here now. They're 3-2. and two. You win the next game, you're 4-2 and two and things look rosy again, but you slip to 3-3 three and three after a 3-0 and oh start and suddenly your season's looking like it's falling apart. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you broke down the Panthers in the way you did there, Joe, because looking at the results, you know, you've seen the Eagles take the Chiefs quite closely and then you see them beat this Panthers team that were flying high and for a moment there I'm going are the Eagles better than I thought they were but I I don't think they are I don't think this is the Eagles being good I think you're right it's the Panthers just not getting going they just couldn't get anything going they just couldn't get anything going on the offense whatsoever it was a really really strange performance after Darnold you know, for those first three games, Donald was looking good. It was looking like he had a rebirth at the Panthers. He was looking like a new man. He was looking like he fitted in with a scheme there. And it looked like, you know, the team was really starting to get something out of him. But this looked very much like Jets era Donald, what we saw on the field with the Eagles on Sunday. And I feel like the Broncos have a very similar problem in that their defence appears to be quite solid but they are just not clicking on offense. And, you know, I feel that a lot of that at the moment is down to Teddy Bridgewater. Yes. Bridgewater, I think I said this before, he's an enigma, really. He came to the league kind of mercurial. Everyone liked him so much in the dressing room. It seems that that whatever team he goes to, people just talk about how he's such a great guy, how he's such a positive figure. Everyone in the locker room loves him. I don't think you'd find a single bad word against him in the league. You'd probably not find a single email in 650,000 saying a bad thing about Teddy Bridgewater. (laughs) But he just seems to go off the boil at key moments in games. He seems that the best he'll ever do with a team is take him 10-7 right now, maybe 11-6 on a good season. He's not ruthless. He's not someone who's going to just rip teams apart in the same way that some of the best quarterbacks in this league do. And that's quite a quite a subjective way of looking at it. And I'm not really kind of backing him up with facts there, but I'm speaking really as a fan here from the experience I had watching him in the Vikings. There's just something that seems to be lacking from his game. And certainly in terms of his decision-making at key moments in clutch situations, he often underperforms. The Broncos haven't been a particularly high-scoring team this season. They've never exceeded 28 points in any of the five games so far. Averaging, you know, 26, okay, but they've not been an offensive team like we say they've been a defensive team. But again, look at that three-game start they had. Giants, Jaguars, Jets. None of those teams have winning records. And then as soon as they face teams with a winning record in the Ravens, they got beat. The Steelers game, nothing really got going. The Steelers weren't playing well. This is, again, similar to the Eagles. Steelers aren't a good team. They're not a terrible team. They're not terrible in the same way the Jaguars and Jets are terrible but they're definitely not a good team. And they put 27 points up on this Broncos side. 
So let's dive in then, Joe, to some of the upcoming games and what we're going to be looking out for. One that I'm particularly interested in is Cleveland versus the Cardinals. Now, the Cleveland Browns lost an absolute shootout to the Chargers at the weekend. It was fantastic watching. Honestly, just edge to edge stuff. If the Browns want to consider themselves a genuine threat postseason, is this a game that they need to see themselves winning? I think that in order to really ensure they're in the playoff picture, this is a game they have to think about winning. They're three and two now, and don't get me wrong, they're the best three and two team in the league. Of those two, one is a loss to the Chargers, like you just mentioned, which was a great, great game. And then the other was a very close loss to the Kansas City Chiefs, who you know, have been and are one of the best teams in the league over the past three years, despite their less than stellar start to the season this year. So they're a three and two team who, if things had gone slightly different, could be a five and O team right now. They're the best three and two team in the league. But it's no good being a great team if you're not winning games. You have to win games. It's wins that get you into the playoffs. You want to stay above five hundred. To stay above five hundred, the Browns have got to beat the Cardinals this weekend. Can they? I think they absolutely can. I think that the Cardinals, they've made a great start. They've been playing well. But are they the best team? Should they be top of power rankings? I don't think they are. Despite their unbeaten record so far, I think there's teams out there that will have the beating of them. And I think it's going to happen this weekend. I think the Cleveland Browns are going to be the team that stops the Cardinals and brings the only unbeaten team to a stop. Interesting. Well, you've almost sort of answered my question. But one of the questions that I was going to ask is, The Cardinals have been very effective against passing teams. Their defense this year looks like a fantastic pass rushing defense. I would suggest that maybe they haven't come up against a team with such a solid run game like the Browns. And potentially, you could argue that the Vikings are one of those teams with Cook and they won that game by a single point. So is a team like the Browns who like to run the ball, the way to potentially undo a team like the Cardinals? I think that's a very good point. That's a very interesting one. Like you say, the teams that have played so far, they won by a point against the Vikings. It was still a high-scoring game, 34-33. But in all truth, the Vikings could have won that game. They very much could have won that game. Had a f- Was that the game when Dalvin Cook fumbled as they were getting into field goal range? Or was it the one where Greg Joseph missed the kick? I think it was the missed kick. I think it was the missed kick. Yeah, uh, the Vikings have managed to clutch defeat from a Georgia victory so many times. Whichever one it was, the Cardinals, I think, left that game feeling like they had a bit of a reprieve. The Vikings very much could have won that one. They beat a Jaguars team. Again. The Jaguars seem to pop up against all these teams that we're talking about. They've played the Jaguars, doesn't really mean much. And then they beat the Rams, and the Rams, like rightly pointed out, really don't have much of a rushing attack. You know, with Donald Henderson being out during that game, they were relying on the pass. So... It'll be very interesting to see how the Browns come out, but I would expect to see a classic Stefanski offence, seeing 2-1 personnel, 2-2 personnel, 12 personnel, all of these sets where you're seeing either two tight ends out there or two running backs or even both, play action, seeing all that kind of stuff. I think this is a system which is going to unlock the Cardinals. Yeah, I'm very interested to see how this plays out because for me, if the Cardinals win this game, I think they've really demonstrated that they are a very well-rounded team and they can beat any given team on their day. If they don't, then I may be starting to look at the Cardinals and and thinking, "Mm, okay, if you've got a very solid run game 
actually you've got a chance of undoing a Cardinals team like this. So I think it's definitely one to watch out for. Like you say, play the Browns, beat the Browns, and then yeah, you've that's three serious victories and you deserve your six and status. On to the next game then, a potentially game of the week, Chargers versus the Ravens. Big game. I'll ask you this, Charles. Do you think that there is a better team in the AFC right now than either of these teams? Do you know what? I, no is the answer, but I I didn't think I'd find myself saying that at the start of the season. I mean, the Ravens, they lost Dobbins and they lost Bateman very early on, which massively I thought would have an effect on their offense. And then early on in the season, they lost quite a few defensive players as well and I just thought with a team that had just been hit so badly by injury they wouldn't be able to keep up and they'd start to suffer they've managed and in very different ways you know big scores good defense good offense they've managed to put together a good run of games and then the Chargers and you know we both said that we thought that Herbert would take a step on from where he was last season. We talked about how much improved we thought that the Chargers defense and special teams was, but they've really gone on a tear and and Herbert has shown an incredible amount of maturity from his rookie season to this season in terms of kind of clutch plays and not making those rookie mistakes. And this is going to be a hell of a battle to watch, I think. Yeah, I agree with everything you've just said there. I think the Chargers are playing at the top end of expectations, if that makes sense. There are a lot of people who put perhaps too much hype on this team, given that people were just overhyping Herbert being a rookie quarterback last season, looking good as a rookie, but people want to always jump on the next big thing. The Chargers were probably getting slightly too much hype, but they are playing, I think, at the top end of sensible expectations. The Ravens, like you say as well, are playing at the top end of expectations given the circumstances they found themselves in with the injuries and losses of players. In the rest of the AFC, I think that the Bills have played magnificently at times but have also looked very flawed at other times. And the same goes for Kansas City. So in terms of pure form right now, especially after what we saw from the Ravens on Monday night, these two teams are the best two teams in the AFC. And I would personally say that the winner of this game at week six should top the power rankings for the AFC. Yep, I think that's very fair. And it's going to have a quite a big impact on the game that we're going on to talk about next, which is the Denver Broncos versus the Las Vegas Raiders. Now, again, it's a division that is really, really tight. And we saw both the Broncos and the Raiders lose this week. The Chiefs also lost. So this feels like such an important game for the division. I think if the Raiders can win this, they've got their season back on track. There's an opportunity that they could make the playoffs postseason. As we've said before, it's a division that could arguably support three. But if Denver win it, then they've won a head-to-head against the Raiders and who knows what happens from there. I think this is a nice game to wrap the pod up on this week because it brings us full circle to what we were talking about at the start. brings us back to the Raiders. Raiders are at a crossroads here. Denver are at a crossroads as well, but basically... The team that loses this is going to have lost a head-to-head, have started 3-0 and gone 3-3. and Their season's going to be heading in the wrong way with the wrong momentum. And with everything that's happened with the Raiders organisation so far, you'd start to feel that some of these nails are starting to really bring down that coffin lid. You win, it shows resilience, it shows you're still in the game. You've got that head-to-head, like you mentioned, you're in the fight. 
The team that loses this, I would probably say, will not go on to make playoffs. It's a very early thing to say. I don't think that's a hot take at all, though. It just shows how much the momentum has shifted from that early promise. Yeah, absolutely. And what are your thoughts on that? What What do you think you need to see from both of these teams to get the win? What needs to change? Because obviously they're, they're down on their luck. So what do you need to see from the Raiders for them to secure a win? And what do you think you need to see from the Broncos for them to secure the win? We're going to need to see on-field leadership from Derek Carr. Ultimately now, he's going to be the main man out on that field there. Gruden's gone. You need to look for leaders in times like this. And the obvious leader to look for is your quarterback. Derek Carr is going to have to really play a man's game, so to speak, and show that he's the guy who's going to lead the Raiders through the storm. Broncos, on the other hand, are just going to have to show that they've still got that fight, that they still want it, that they can be ruthless enough. And, and this goes back to the ruthlessness that I said was lacking from Bridgewater. They've got to show the ruthlessness to put their foot to the neck of a wounded animal. And that's what we've got to do here. The Raiders, we've seen they were a very high scoring game to start the season and that's kind of dipped quite a bit the last couple of games. Josh Jacobs has really started to become a lot more ineffective as a rusher. Do you think that is a case of the run game is not being helped by the passing game, i.e. cars not got things ticking and, and so defences are able to stop Jacobs quicker? Or do you think it's the other way around? Jacobs isn't getting the run game going and actually that's making it very difficult for Carr to make those passes because they just don't need to protect the run as much. I think there's been some weird personnel choices in this Raiders team. In the offseason, they spent, what, $6 million on bringing Kenyon Drake over? Now, Kenyon Drake has been a relatively effective running back, both at Miami and the Cardinals. He's not been in the kind of stratosphere of elite running backs, but he's been, you know, certainly second level, maybe top of a level below that. He's hardly getting touches at the moment. Now, okay, some of that has been down to game scripts, some of it, but when you're paying a second running back $6 million, that implies you're going to go with a dual-back system. Something like the kind of touch share that players like Chubb and Hunt have. But it's still been very, very much favouring Jacobs. Now, I think they need to find ways to get Drake involved. And the way that Drake plays with his catching ability as well, his ability to make a big explosive plays, I think they're the kind of things that the Raiders could be crying out for right now to really open up games, to really get that spark going. I think they need to get Drake involved more. Well, look, it's going to be interesting. As you mentioned, Carr's going to need to step up in this game, but the Broncos have shown that they have, at times, a very elite defence. It's going to be really interesting to see which part of these teams show up and how it plays out. Joe, thank you very much. It's been fantastic to have you back again, and uh, I can't wait to see the next series of games. See you next week, Charles.